if you're exceptional, you feel connected. But if you feel mediocre, you can go borderline depression. Mm. You look at people that work a long life and all their social life was in their work or career and then they stopped. Yeah. And they're on a slippery slope to depression very quickly. With nutrition, um, when it's exceptional, you've got energy. But if it's mm. mediocre, 33% of all cancer and all uh, diabetes is from, is from obesity. Yeah. So we've got disease as a mm. mediocre consequence if we don't if we don't improve our the art and the way that we eat. That was Marcus Pierce, and you're listening to the Regenerative Journey. Here at the Regenerative Journey, we know that good health is related to good food and good practices, but understand that sometimes the right food choices are quite hard to put into place. But our good buddy Cindy O'Meara at the Nutrition Academy is helping people break old habits to create a much healthier lifestyle so in support of what she's doing we're offering a 100 discount to all our listeners simply enroll in their functional nutrition course and enter the coupon charlie 100 that's charlie 100 the nutrition academy say goodbye to old food habits and hello to a much we acknowledge healthier, the traditional life. custodians of country throughout australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country culture community land sea and sky and we pay our respects to elders past present and emerging G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. plug for our workshops coming up in December. Uh, the first one is at, at the farm at Byron Bay in the northern uh, rivers of New South Wales on the 2nd and 3rd of December. And then our next one is the next week, 7th and 8th of December at, the, at Hannah Minow here at Burrawa in the south of Slopes of New South Wales. It's our two-day introduction to biodynamics course. Uh, theory in the morning, crack in the afternoon. It's two days. Jump on charliearnett.com.au, the events page there, to book your tickets. Sneak these workshops in before the end of the year, before the festive season, and uh, hope to see you there. G'day. Today's guest uh, is Marcus Pierce, the author of Your Exceptional Life. I've known um, Marcus for a number of years now, and we had a fantastic yarn about his regenerative journey from growing up in Melbourne, um, his sports journalism days when he was a smoking beer, well not beer drinking, stolly drinking, um, Red Bull drinking uh, journalist in uh, in Melbourne and then um, he was a vegan for a while. Um, then he had some epiphanies and his um, his search for the secrets to longevity um, and quality of life has led him to... Um, uh, to, uh, to to Greece and many other places, searching for the secrets to longevity. He's put that all together in a book called Your Exceptional Life. Uh, it was an exceptional experience sitting here with Marcus um, for, for an hour and a half um, talking about his exceptional regenerative journey. Such a pleasure, uh, and I hope you get as much pleasure out of listening to this interview as I did recording it. Here it is, Marcus Pierce. Marcus Pierce. Welcome to the regenerative journey, and welcome to the farmhouse at the farm at Byron Bay. Charlie Arnott, 
Thank you so much for having me at this beautiful location, the farm. Only about 20 minutes from home for me. I don't know whether to say it's 20 minutes from home for you or it's like your third home because you're at Hannah Minnow. <laughs> uh, yeah, out the back of Burke here in Byron and then you're here during the week. It, it must feel like home being here. It does. This is really – you've turned this right around just up front. <coughs> I'm an expert. Question, haven't I? He's an expert, this bloke. <laughs> um, no, did, did right. I, I, when I'm in Byron Bay, I am here in the daytime at the farm at Byron Bay and very kindly been um, furnished with a little office space um, to to do my work up here. And it's uh, it's a pretty loose arrangement, but I it's just a lovely place. I can meet well, people. Lucy, you mean generous because you're very generous. Here it at is. The farm. Yeah. It's very, absolutely. And yeah. uh, it's a great place to meet people. It's a great place to. Um, this is an advertisement, turning into an advertisement for no. the farm. We're just it? raging. We're just raging patriot, uh, patriots <laughs> for our local community. <laughs> we are. And we love, we love all things local. And we, we probably know half the team that work here. And um, you're good people. We're passionate about it, aren't we? Um, absolutely. Because, I mean, you can't not be when the food's this good and the views this good. We are sitting here looking at some Scottish Highlander cows. Um, they look like wieners out there, little calves out, out there heading to the west. There's corellas. <clears throat> There's the bin, good old binchook flying around looking for a feed. We've got pigs, I think, just down here somewhere. Now, <coughs> Oliver's right. hens. Oliver's yeah. hens? Yeah, Oliver's hens, no. Talk yeah. to me about he Oliver's hens. moved them in there the other day um, on Tuesday. It's today's Friday. And that might be him down there having a chat unless there's some <laughs> one of the visitors here. Good afternoon here to you, Oliver. Just, <laughs> good afternoon. He's, um, he's a lovely fella and he's doing really well. He actually started um, he started a, a, an egg-laying egg business with chickens <clears throat> at the, one of the local Steiner schools, the Chiwater Steiner School, in, oh. I think it was year 11. Had a business at the school in the in the agriculture area in the paddocks. I think I know this story. Yeah, and he's and now he's here and it's fantastic. So big shout out to Oliver. I love it. And all his hens. I'm not sure how many hens he has. Some hundreds of them there. And he's got. I thought he had two two lots of them. <clears throat> but we digress. Well, well it's a visual spot. overload here, isn't it? It's just a beautiful place to be. And for those who are um, on the uh, on looking at this on YouTube. Um, then it look like we're sitting up in a country um, a cricket um, pavilion looking at a, a game of cricket. doesn't look at the I have to box. do this, Charlie. So I've <coughs> got to turn this around for everyone that's watching that's on great. YouTube so they can see why we're so, so that's a good. That's a good call. That's a, no, I've never done that before. Sorry, mate. I've just ruined I'll have to, No, I'll have to take you to every every interview I do now just to do that. No, don't be sorry. That's great. That was a good call. There we go. It's a bit delicate, that thing. Yeah, <laughs> we've already had a little so, mate, trouble. <laughs> let's, get in, let's get into it. We, you're, um, you're living up here with your wonderful family. Um, why? Why the Northern Rivers? Oh, well, we were living in uh, Inverloch. We, 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 will, we will get to when you, when you arrived on this earth. Yes, no, let's go backwards. Know, let's go backwards. The, the vibe, I'm just interested to know why... You know why you're here. You could have been given what I know about you and your your wonderful book that um, has just come out. Your exceptional life, the travelling you've done, and your your career. You could have been living anywhere in the world, really. So why why in the Northern Rivers? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, we were living in South Gippsland, Victoria. Um, I grew up in suburban uh, Melbourne, and uh, we'd been running a chiropractic centre for six or seven years. And Sarah had a meltdown one night feeling like an average chiropractor and an average mum. Mm. Um, she felt like she couldn't give to both. And um, it's an interesting conversation, particularly these days, that, that tricky uh, balance between work and family, particularly for women, particularly for women that are mums. And um, 
I essentially said, well, let's just sell the business and, and move north. We were a little bit over living in a cold beachside town. Uh, watching the ocean and it being sub-zero is really frustrating because you want to go in, but maybe we didn't have the courage to do so. We had two days of summer every year. Uh, we lived near our family. Sarah's mum and dad were living in Inverloch, but we we go, we didn't own a home. We didn't have any connections or any um, roots down except this business. And we had two children at the time that were getting ready to go to school, and we, I think, made that courageous decision that a lot of people um, flirt with a lot is... Um, the nutrient of loving where you live is perhaps the number one nutrient for an, an exceptional life, pardon the pun. Mm. Uh, but it's one that many of us feel like we can't make because of our family connections, you know, living close to family or our work and our income or many any number of reasons. But um, we decided to, to give it a shot and we uh, came up to Byron for a week thinking we were coming up to go and look at Byron to Noosa, in, anywhere in that in that phase. And... Um, we ended up going to the Cape Byron Spring Fair, which was just by chance on in the same week that we were at on holiday at the school. Yeah, And we had this fabulous day and it was kind of like, oh, you kind of felt like we'd found our community. We kind of just easily made friends and we did a little tour of the school. And after that day, it was probably two or three days after landing from Victoria, we thought, this is where we want to live. Like, mm. we, we don't need to go to Noosa and scope that out or the sunny coast uh, anywhere there. We just... Never left, and um, that was back in twenty four or twenty thirteen, and we moved up here in twenty fourteen. Been here ever since. I still think best decision we've ever made in life. Just go back to you just made the point that the nutrient of your of your love or life, no, oh, no life your... or probably and love, but just um, community. Like the the mm. word origin of community comes from uh, the essentially the Latin and then the French word communite meaning public spirit, and there is something very special about up here. There's a public mm. spirit in this community that um, I haven't found anywhere else in Australia. I haven't seen anywhere near as much of Australia as you have, but there is just something very special about the public spirit of um, where you and I are right now. And can, you, can you articulate that? I think if you, or as Tony Robbins would say, you, when you say he asks you a question and you go, I don't know, he goes, well, if you did know, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, I love that no one really cares what you wear, how much you earn and what car you drive. Um, people have a genuine respect for you, whether you're an employee, an entrepreneur, somewhere in the middle, a bit of both. Um, there's, a great, there's a great level of um, like natural exercise you know people love to surf or they love to um you know walk the lighthouse or just work on the farm or tend to their own garden at home like um it, it seems very yeah natural so to speak inclusive or yeah less judgmental or something like that yep and then and obviously the the social aspect is is fabulous i love again particularly pre-covid how um you could go into byron town or mullum or anywhere and just hear so many different languages so many different accents and I loved that, um, and I missed that. And I think just the, the access to food. I think Sarah and I were we're really quite. Isn't that beautiful? Are they cockatoos? Corellas. Corellas. They are just. Or cockatoos. No, corellas. Yeah, they're corellas. corellas just spellbinding. <clears throat> uh, the access to great food. I think you know you've mentioned mm. it many times when I've interviewed you, and I've popped it in the book as well. How important it is to know your farmer? And I did not know a farmer until we were living in Ireland in 2006 and uh, I was 25 at that time. But now living up here and going to the farmer's market, New Brighton every Tuesday, 
I know Kate who grows my avocados. I know Rod who grows my kale and my cabbage. I know um, I know Sarah who even gets the tempeh. I know grumpy grandmas um, and Rosa who sells the olives. I know who I get the apples from. Yeah, I know awesome. you know where I get my eggs from. Like I get, I think there's some. You know, a lot of people that live in particularly urban areas find that really difficult, and I can't help but difficult know. to understand the importance, or difficult to just get the food. But difficult or both, I think. But difficult yeah. to get the food. It's like oh, it's easy for you because you got a farmers market, you know, pretty much every day. Mm. Um, but it just it feels to me like living here makes it easier to live the life I want to live. Good call. I have to say <clears throat> that's why you know I'm up here a fair bit. And it is a lovely, lovely place to be. <clears throat> um, as you say, you know, Corolla's just cruising past. That was Oliver actually in his little buggy cruising oh, past nice. there. Having col- oh, maybe he's collecting eggs. Maybe he did that in the morning. Um, it is a wonderful place. And and it's yeah, I think it's changing. We've sort of had an association with, with, with Byron for oof, 10, 10, 11 years now. And I... I've seen changes, which we can <clears throat> we can get into. It's not yeah. about, not about me. It's about you, Marcus. No, I'd love Stop to know. turning this around. We show our age when we say I've seen changes. Like, the farm wasn't oh, here when we moved here. Back in you know, day. that's right. It the was. farm wasn't here when we moved. That was yeah. So it's they, you go. Oh, been here. I can see the development. <laughs> totally. But that's you know that's that's okay. It's you know it's it's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to um, you know refer back to the past yeah. and in you know places like the farm just the, just the amount of growth and and you know it's um and development and what it's contributed to to this community again sounds like a plug for the farm and it is but it's not supposed to be we just um, love it <clears throat> we just love it here um now tell me let's go back where i don't know how far you want to go back marcus to um in your life to you know significant moments um life-changing when you're Young whippersnapper down there, down south. Yeah. Um, tell me about tell me about that. Just to give people a sense of Marcus Pierce as a young tacker. Well, I love these questions, Charlie. You've got a great great way of asking just genuinely soulful questions. <laughs> um, I was obsessed with football growing up, the sport to a larger extent. Um, I. When so I realised now, when you say foot for those, not- oh yes, Aussie rules. Sorry, I'm a Victorian, <laughs> really by DNA. Because so. the Poms will think you're talking about soccer. Yes, that's it. No, um, uh, Australian rules football. Yeah. You might have to Google it if you're overseas um, <laughs> or YouTube it. But um, I always had a, a driving ambition to be a sports journalist, even more overtly a sports commentator. Um, loved Bruce McAvaney. Um, Eddie Maguire, uh, these types of commentators and, and journalists of, of my era. And uh, when I realised I was not going to be a footballer, I studied journalism at RMIT in Melbourne and uh, and worked in the sports media for six or seven years. Um, a few uh, non-sport times like S11, um, when that all happened, when the Twin Towers came down and a few things that where all sport became irrelevant. But largely spent my time in sport for six or seven years. Um, and I honestly thought that would be my life until I met Sarah. And at the time, I was a smoking, drinking, binge drinking, you know, workaholic journalist. And Sarah was a wellness practitioner, organic food, this. And she would have known her farmers. She was going to farmers markets. She, <laughs> she, she got me on a cleanse, which I failed miserably at after like two days. And I was trying to quit the cleanse to go back to my cigarettes and Red Bull. And so, how, so just tell us about that. How, how does how did two people with such different interests and sort of habits? Get to meet, or is this is this, or is this somewhere we're going? This is the no, it's the uh, it's the. Do you believe in opposites attract? I think I was about to start work at uh, the Footy Show at Channel Nine, the AFL Footy Show back in two thousand and 
five, and I'd, I'd been working at, uh, it's still going today, a 24-hour sports radio station in Melbourne called SEN. I'd worked there for a year when it began, and then I um, landed a job at Channel 9, and in between, I went over to Perth to visit my friend from university, um, who is Alicia Loxley. She's a newsreader in, at Channel 9 in Melbourne, and Alicia uh, and had made a friend in WA called um, Ali, and Sarah had gone to visit her friend Ali, and I went over to visit my friend Alicia, and so I met Sarah uh, over in Fremantle. And, uh, just, just as sort of casual, as in, oh, this is my friend and that's your friend correct. and we're going to go for a drink or something. Pretty much, 100%. <clears throat> yeah, and cool. uh, this was in Fremantle and um, back in the year 2005. Sure, it wasn't like a, you know organised thing. No, because I don't know what the, the rating is of this uh, podcast, Charlie, but I had gone Very over there good. expressly to um, to see as many girls as I could before I... Before I uh, Went oh, on the oh, deep oh, dive. Oh, you mean on into, that sort of rating? Yeah. Before uh, <laughs> I went on the deep dive of TV, I knew my TV career would be a very intense workaholic <laughs> career. So I was kind of just going over to Frio to um, unleash for a week. But did, did, but you, I go fell to, in love did you go to Club Bay View? That's where. If you were going, I think I might have. If you if you were going to Perth for that 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 sole purpose, then that's where you probably should have gone. Yeah, I met Sarah at the Oyster Bar, uh, which was in Fremantle. Um, we went to uh, Little Creatures, which mm. make great beer. And uh, Bayview does sound uh, familiar. And um, there's one that I'm forgetting, but anyway, that's okay. Yeah, good times. But that's that's what happened. And um, and that kind of led me down the path of health and wellness. And so, and Sarah was in Melbourne as well? Yeah. 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 Okay, so, so you went, oh, let's get to... Playing home together. Yeah, pretty much. I think I wrote her a love letter on the way home because she actually had a not a boyfriend, but she had a, a flame in Melbourne, Hello. and so it was like, oh, do I do I follow the flame or do I go with this new guy, Marcus? And you kneecap him. Oh, <laughs> might have made a detour on the way home from the airport. <laughs> nice one. Hey, and let's go back further because I'm just going to get a sense of um, so loving the idea of being sport, sports journalism, living urban in an urban, suburban situation. Yep, Templestowe, Melbourne, eastern yep. suburbs. Mm. Yeah, very much, um, very much. My mum, my mum's one of 15 children. Um, 15? 15 children. So my incredible nana um, came on the scene after Annie Seymour, who I think is an auntie of Mark Seymour and Nick Seymour, you know, Hunters and Collectors Dance, and, um, yeah, totally. and Crowder House. Uh, so Annie Seymour was my pa's first wife, and she died after giving birth to my auntie Christine, uh, who was the 10th child. And then my nana came on the scene as a 33-year-old nurse, I think at St. Vincent's in Melbourne, and she fell in love with my pa, inherited 10 children, had another five. Um, what was your pa's name? Uh, Harry Anderson. Harry. Harry Anderson. And he was almost responsible Ooh, for bringing yeah. hosiery into Australia. He was an incredible man. Really? I think he was the president of the Coburg. So he's in the right industry to, you know. Yeah, totally. To, to attract <laughs> women. Females. Wow. <laughs> but um, yeah, my mum's side has an incredible story, and, and, and dad's equally as well. But, um, yeah, so grew up in a, in a suburban, um, very much that typical, I feel like that typical Australian suburban upbringing, you know, Hot dogs and sausage rolls and party pies and mm. hot chips and four and twenty. Very little fruit and mm. not much vegetables unless maybe it was white potato. Um, the white, know. the white, the um, white foods. You know, but a great upbringing. Like, I, I still maintain. I don't think any adult gets to their adult life and and gets so angry at their parents for the food that they gave them. No. Like, like there's a few things we might resent about our upbringing, but it's rarely the food. We if we if we didn't agree with it, we'd probably make a few changes in our adult life, but. 
Um, I never look back and go, oh, you terrible. But, but, but I guess the sta- was it would be fair to say the standards were different back then, like in terms of, you know, throw a dart into any suburban house, um, what are you eating? Probably going yeah. to be that. Barbecue shapes, yeah. pizza shapes, white yeah. bread, yeah. 10 pieces of it. Yeah. So that was pretty much the standard. Yeah, yeah. totally. I think culturally things have changed. Um over the last 30 years in terms of even just going to the supermarket and seeing what they've got available these days, it blows my mind. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't think it's getting much better. I mean, I guess maybe the maybe the maybe maybe it's getting the extremes are getting wider. Like, you know, yes, you can get organic food in some supermarkets now, but then you look at some aisles, it's like, I don't even know if that stuff's food. No, and I think that's the challenge. I mean, um, I know this is not an ad, but I was uh, looking, I was at in Brisbane the other day and I went to Harris Farm. Uh, oh, no, talk it up. Yeah. We can talk Harris Farm. I thought of you. Yeah. I thought of you as, as soon as I walked in there. Yeah, I thought of Charlie Arnott. Um, and, and just to fill in, the, the if for those listeners, if I can give Harris Farm a plug, um, I'm very honoured to be their um, Regenerative Farming Ambassador and they are going great guns in supporting the products and the farmers and the and the and on those farms, um, supporting the practices and then highlighting that food that they're producing in, in that way in store. And I, it's, awesome. I, it's just mind-boggling that, you know, I'm 39 now. You know, 30 years later, uh, one generation, we've got places like Harris mm. Farm spotting mm. up all around the country, making it easier for uh, people, you know, with guidance like yourself being the official regen certifier at Harris Farm and the rest, to be able to actually make uh, better informed decisions. And I just think, yeah, a lot of our parents of the, you know, 80s and 90s did not have it that easy. No, I guess it was harder. <clears throat> Probably less farmers' markets. Correct. Um, I guess, you know, the, the, I mean, <laughs> this is an extreme, but back in those days you could advertise cigarettes on TV. Yeah, like, absolutely. Everyone pretty much smoked. Um, they just I think the they did a great job. I think I was stealing cigarettes out of my mum's uh, little packet at the age of 10, I reckon. Was she? What is she smoking? Benson Hedges Extra Mile. Benson Hedges yeah, Extra Mile. The gold pack. My grandmother smoked them too. Yeah, they were good. For I, I loved time. my smoking days. Don't miss them. <clears throat> Don't miss them, but... Mm. Did you, were you sneaking? Oh, Red Bulls went around then. There you no, go. They, weren't, no, they, were, they were a sponsor of the footy show. So oh, there was a Red Bull yeah, fridge. You had to. Yeah, so morning tea was Red Bull and a cigarette. That's not an ad. No, that's not unlike the, in, in the country there's a saying, you know, um, uh, a bounty rider's breakfast is a piss and a look around. <laughs> <laughs> so your breakfast was a cigarette and Red Bull. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, I know. How times have changed, eh? Hey? Totally, and that was that was um, encouraged, I suppose. That's a sponsor. Never thought I'd make it on the regenerative journey. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have known how to spell a word back then. How funny! Um, so yeah, so you weren't smoke. Well, you were smoking, but you weren't drinking Red Bull back then, back no. in the su- suburbs of Melbourne. I was called Stolly Boy. Stolly. Do you remember Stollies? Oh, the Stollies. Yeah, those. Yeah. Um, I couldn't drink beer. Couldn't drink beer as a teenager. Not they're until twenty first. Lolly water, aren't they? Yeah. Yep, Stollies. Because oh, it's a vodka. Is that yeah, a I think it was Stollies. No, vodka, but it was a lemon. It was a lemon drink, and I Stolies. could not handle a beer or a scotch or anything. So my first introduction to alcohol was Stollies. It's yeah, and you can drink a lot of those. Yeah, and not really know what. And then, yeah. and then, then suddenly go. And wish I hadn't. All goes pear shaped. Yeah. So, you, so Stolly boy down there in Melbourne. Um, what happened after you left left home? And then it was just straight to uni. Stayed at home, but then after a while. Uh, did the media? I was working in breakfast radio whilst I was at uni. Um, as as what? 
as a as an assistant go, producer. You, you do, oh no, okay. Yeah, so I was a producer. Uh, so I was in my media times. I was often more behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, okay. Producers would often say their job was to make the hosts look and sound good. Yeah. Um. So I was working with yeah Kevin Bartlett, who's an AFL legend down in Melbourne, and uh, Gary Honey, and then it was into um, SEN and the Footy Show, and then once all of that happened as a as a producer, which I loved. Um, I just felt like it was time to stop reporting on strained hamstrings and footballers' personal lives and, oh, someone's done their knee again. And you just felt like a bit of an ambulance chaser after a while. Yeah. And it didn't really... And I think meeting Sarah was a great opportunity to go... Like I became... Um, I've got a bit of an obsessive personality, but we went... I went from smoking and drinking a lot to, you know, I think raw vegan. We were raw vegan for a time, but Sarah and I went vegan for... Period of time and whose who's choice and what what, well, what prompted well, that? you mentioned him earlier. We attended a Tony Robbins event. In oh, Sydney. I've, no, that's yeah. the only thing I've got a problem with Tony. Tony, if you're listening to this, and I hope you you are. I've met him a couple of times and he went to a couple of his courses. Yeah, and I, that's no. Well, no, you tell me. We might have to do it. We might have to talk about this. This can be the chunk. This can be the meat in the sandwich mm. and the real meat in the real sandwich. Um, <laughs> not the plant not based. Not some plant based. Drinking uh, food. Yeah, totally. So. Um, so on the fourth day of this event, uh, it was do this. Uh, the recommendation was do this ten day so challenge. The fourth day of one of his events, of the, yeah, UPW, of, yeah, UPW, yeah. yeah. Unleash so I, I your, did, I, unleash, unleash the, the power, power within. within. That's yep. Uh, so Sarah and I, all guns blazing, let's give this a go for ten days. That's sorry, I'm I'm, I'm stopping and starting a bit, but the, it's fast. So you, how long have you been seeing each other? Oh, we've been seeing each other January nine months, let's say. Okay, so that's it's not as though you went, hey. Great trip to Perth. Let's go to UPW. No, no, that's right. You sort of were getting to. Yep. Yeah, he's yep. into it. No, because it's a full on. For those who haven't done it, it is a four days of full onness. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was it was great for us at that time of our relationship. You just, yeah, it got a lot of clarity. Um, and what we did was where we did ten days and then we did thirty days. And the thing I was vegetarian, and then it was like, oh, let's just cut out meat. I, I don't know what I can't remember the exact progression, but for six or seven years. We were vegetarian or vegan, and my nickname went from because I was at the footy show at the time. Can you imagine? I went from Red Bull on a cigarette to ginger tea, which I grated on that on the and raw cashews. So I went from <laughs> MP or PC to mung bean was my new nickname. <laughs> you can imagine, like, just the culture of a footy show, largely male dominated office. And uh, it was a, it was a tough gig because I tried. Play, to, well, they played tricks on you and like oh, put meat in something. And I was say, quite oh, it good. Is, at, I was quite good at giving back as good as I got. Yeah, but I um, but it was a, it was a very transformative <laughs> time, let's say. And uh, I think a lot of people experience it, particularly you know in your twenties, you're trying to figure out okay, what's your life all about, and um, and that mix of you know, do I really want to be in sport like this? I probably felt I was not going to be a commentator. And I think I was looking for something with more meaning. Yeah. And I think health and wellness felt like it had more meaning. But there was a very big um, challenge I found with being vegan. And I think at the time, and I don't, I would never want to say that it exists today, but I definitely felt at the time there was a view that if you were vegan, you were enlightened and you had found the secret to, I thought I found the secret to longevity. Um, People really felt that veganism was the secret to life. And looking back on it now, um, I kind of laugh at some of my behaviour. I would shave with avocados. (laughs) Oh, in in terms of instead of froth. Avocado would be my... With your your lather. Would be my my lather. (laughs) I don't want to tell you how much money... You look like the green... No, who is that? Um, Shrek. (laughs) 
And totally. And and because we're on the regenerative journey, I can tell you that I was shaving with avocados in Ireland, which I can't imagine avocados even growing in Ireland. So they would have been imported avocados, would have done thousands of food miles wow. to get to our little uh, thatched cottage in Donegal Town. And I thought that I was doing the most... The world of favour. Yeah, totally. Well, at least you could have just put it on a bit of toast. <laughs> Oh, that would have been the, that would have been at least you'd have, been, have been contributing a something. Whole lot. Yeah, yeah. But these are, you know, <laughs> as I said, sense. I'm happy to share any of the foibles of uh, being vegan for six or seven years. But um, no, yeah. I mean, I mean, on toast after you shaved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could have caught it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I could have caught it. And that said, would have look, been very regenerative. Yeah, a little, yeah. little bit sort of cannibalistic. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was just dipping. That's that's that that's, that's that's um, I've never heard that, and that's 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 um, committed. That's Hardcore. Commitment. Yeah. Wow, and so, so we're tell not me, vegan, we were raging. So, so what was the six years of of that? Um, got to a point. I'm assuming that you you, you didn't want to do that anymore. Or you, you stopped. We doing were it. questioning it, and um, <laughs> I think by this point we definitely had one child. Paul Mayer grew up on quinoa and kale for breakfast every morning, and we were questioning. I think we'd had Darby by this point, mm. but then we're at another event which was run by Dr. John D. Martini, mm. and he asked the question. He must have been talking about food. And he's far more omnivorous in his philosophy. And he just asked a question. He said, if you consider how you felt when you started vegan and you consider how you feel now, um, how much better do you feel? Yeah. And the question was, we actually don't really feel any better. Like, like a lot of diets, we'd had a spike in energy and yeah. enthusiasm. Yep. Uh, but then there was a massive plateau for probably five or six years. And I think we had begun, as you probably know, I'm a big believer in seven-year cycles. I reckon as we were approaching that seven-year mark, we were probably beginning to feel our energy not nowhere near as strong, um, concentration levels beginning to dip. And you talk to a number of people that were vegos or vegan for seven, 14, 20 years. A lot of it comes down to just their, their brain behaviour. You know? well, and, and so decision-making... Focus, um, yeah. Talk, talk, talk about that a bit because that that for me is that's that fascinates me because I I, I, mean, I just segue slightly. You know, I I don't engage too many with vegans, and that's because I don't like them. It's just that I'm, I'm, I operate in a different world You're and a so farmer. on. Yeah, and and um, you know we produce meat and and you know it's more what I read and I guess and I digest and I observe is. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I, 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 and I joke to Anne sometimes, and I think, oh, I don't think their brains are working properly. Well, I think. And we, that sounds yeah. a bit. No, of, well, we have a great mutual friend in Cindy O'Meara, and oh, I think Cindy is a wonderful um, deliverer of the information between real meat and fake meat. And yeah. um, she goes hard, doesn't she? But she's very good she's at explaining great. the information. Totally. And that's what I, that's what I love about Cindy. But I think for, for me, in, in the vegan world when I was in it, the whole conversation around B12 was almost like poo-poo. It was just like, okay. oh, yeah, whatever. You, what, you know? you, what, you don't need it? Oh, it was just like oh, all the meat eaters will say, oh, what about my B12? <clears throat> you know what the vegan response at the time was? Mm. Was, well, with all of the lettuce that I eat and all of the plant-based foods that I eat, there's a lot of insects in that, you know, and, and that's where the protein comes. Like, I don't want to laugh, but I do want to laugh. It's hilarious <laughs> how how that was like the message. If you were reading books in 2006 and seven, mm. and there was like the FAQ, like when a meat eater asks you about your diet, right. like, and these were the vegan experts at the time sharing yeah. sharing the, the canned responses. Don't wash your lettuce. Where do you get your protein from? Mm. You know, what about B12 and all the yep. rest of it? Yeah. Um, 
but I just feel I'm very I'm a I'm a far bigger believer in anecdotal research and feelings. So the feelings of just what happens in your life. Yeah. And I know for us, um, our concentration levels, but also our extremism. Everything became everything. That's not that's, not, that's too hard, but. We became very right, wrong, good, bad. Um, yeah, okay. And <clears throat> and I have a I have a view that you know when you do anything extreme, it can proliferate into other areas of your consciousness of your of your mm. worldview. And I feel like we became. I shouldn't speak for Sarah, but I'll say I definitely feel like I became you know very right, wrong, good, bad, very polarized, very and very polarized. Yeah. And how did that play out in your relationships or work or things? I mean, I'm trying to work out what oh, wow. what, what 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 was it? Was there a catalytic event or situation you went? Oh, standing yeah. back. Maybe. I think. Uh, well, I think I think the real catalyst was Sarah was with a practitioner <laughs> who said, "See eating meat as medicine. Don't see it as you know." Sarah was in the phase of I'm killing an animal and I'm killing another life, and the practitioner was like, "No, this is like you're raising a life." And you need you need this nourishment of another being's life mm. in your body. And uh, Sarah, as a as a as a chiropractor, as a practitioner, that was her, for want of a better term, her saving grace to cross the bridge to reintroduce animal protein. So she was doing it essentially for, for her, the child else. in her yes. womb. Yeah. Um, for me, so I, so in some ways it was that was that was um, not an easy out, but that was like it took. The responsibility away from herself, and well, when she had to took on the responsibility, it was almost like she's not changing her mind, yeah, or had made a wrong decision in the first place. It's like, oh, I'm doing this for someone else. Yeah, that's a big leap, though. It is, it is, and it's very much. It's probably a, a, um, a stereotypical mother's response. It's just they're so giving by nature. Whereas I'm just like, I don't feel 100 percent on this anymore. I just want some meat, <laughs> you know. So I didn't need the research. I didn't need the science. I'm like, I can just feel within myself, like. Mm. Um, just, had, had you suppressed those feelings for those? I suppressed years? it because I'd also stopped drinking. So can you imagine? We were living in Ireland. We'd gone vegan, vegetarian, and uh, stopped drinking in Ireland. Of did all they places. like? Did they like turn up to your house with pitchforks and burning steaks? Almost. Going, I think they like kicked us out of the cottage and said, oh, "You're only allowed to eat meat and drink in here." Um, but a part of me, a part of me, mourned the fact that we didn't get into enough of the mm. Irish culture. Um, in hindsight, we did so much. We've got an Irish family over in Donegal and, and great friends. Um, but part of me is like you realise how much food and alcohol is a really um, staple part of a culture. Now, mm. what I realised, I had gone all the way from having enjoying a drink uh, to not drinking and I had forgotten for probably four or five years whilst I wasn't drinking alcohol that it was actually okay to just have a beer. So I was in Bali. My dad was about to propose to his now wife, Brenda, and I just wanted to clink a corona with my dad and go, Mm. congratulations, dad, and was pretty much on the spot. I was like, hold on a minute. Why do I have to be so extreme? Like no meat, no alcohol, you know, no this, no that. Uh, It was at that moment that I think I maybe began to mature somewhat and thought yeah. I can have a bit of I can have a bit of alcohol like I, I can't I'm a two pot screamer I can't get drunk to save myself really it's just one beer and I'm done one glass of wine and I'm done and I I, I think I've forgotten uh, that I was older and I wasn't 20 anymore and I wasn't going to go and have 12 beers yeah. with the boys and I think um, you know in many ways I think it's just a part of growing up I was just learning how to live uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful it happened in my 20s and I wasn't having to work all that out so much later in life and you learn to trust I mean in some ways trust yourself that like oh if I have one it's it's a dozen yeah you and know? that is also reflective um, of the drinking culture in Australia 
Yeah. You know, in countries that I travel to for you know longevity trips and the rest, they don't they don't rate getting drunk at all. No, They're it all about a like, it defeats a purpose. Yeah. We actually can't have the fun that we wanted to have. Um, so I think well, that, at least you want to be able to remember the fun you had too, don't you? Yeah, we've got things like eating is cheating. You know, <laughs> like I'm like, no, I, I want to have I want to have some good food with yeah. you and drink some good wine. <laughs> Maybe start off with a nice beer beforehand. You know, but I just think we've um. Yeah, part of me feels like we're – it's a bit like what we spoke about supermarkets earlier. I feel like, you know, we're in the process of maturing our culture. Australia's yeah. such a young culture still. You know. I, I reckon we're still youths. Yeah. I think we're st- as a race, we're, we're youths. Yeah. We're just – this. I think this is, this is – we can get to it later on. That's the – the. quite loud. Someone, someone made something <laughs> fun down there. <laughs> Classic. That's the problem with having good gear, Marcus. You can pick it up, pick that's it all, all up. You know, the, the COVID thing is – which we can get to if you want to, you know, like a lot of disturbance, a lot of angst, a lot of pushing, you know, push and shove and friction and however you want to sort of describe that is, is you know, Hamish Mackay talks about this a lot is, you know, we are, as a race, we're sort of in that sort of a um, uh, little bit more, bit beyond being a juvenile, we're in the adolescent stage, mm. you know, in a funny yeah. sort of way. But that's that's another conversation. Well, I think when you travel Europe, you realise how young Australia is. Yeah, totally. Whether it's architecture, whether it's just their daily rhythms and, <laughs> you know, even looking at biodynamics and the way that they do it so naturally without even needing a label for it. Totally. You recognise that um, uh, for us, and, I, you know, you're one of my real mentors in this space, is like we need we need pioneers right now in Australia because it's really only just beginning. We're, yeah, and we're lucky. We've I guess that there we can we can adapt biodynamics. You know, its its origin in in, in Europe and and some of the other indigenous cultures. And and I guess well, that's another conversation. <clears throat> in some strange, not strange way, in a way, is you know the the appropriation of indigenous cultures practices. And you know, I've, you know that that's an <clears throat> that's a bit of a rabbit hole because I actually I'm a big fan of you know. Let's use and collaborate and share wisdom and experience for a better future, whether that's food or environment or, you know, human health or whatever. Um, and I find it interesting that, that a lot of, you know, people, individuals, um, are really possessive about their Indigenous cultural potential contribution to agriculture, say. I'm, I'm talking about there's other, you know, there's art and, you know, yeah. science in that form. But I think it's fascinating that... That that's that's what it is. I'm not saying yeah. it's bad. I'm just saying it's sort of, I don't know, just a, a different. But it does show, like you said, when you're referencing, you know, Australia as almost like adolescence. Mm. We still have a lot in the maturity, um, in the maturity uh, scale yeah. to to grow. You know, and I think that's something that many of us are grappling with at the minute. Yeah. Tell me. So, um, yeah, I think you're about to say. Uh, oh no no! You, you, the the meat was there was a so the beer alcohol thing was was dad's um, uh, yeah and uh, and the meat was um, attending a John D Martini event and and re- realizing that we were we, we we did not feel any better uh, yeah. and we did not really look in any better shape um, being vegan and and we were beginning to really struggle through it so we just reintroduced meat from there. And what were, I, tell me about that first moment. That that I still remember. Stage. It was fish. No, it was fish. Oh, easy I know. We, I, I don't, so we definitely must have eased into it. I don't remember the lead up. I do remember we were with others. I can't remember if they knew this was our introduction. <laughs> like if if they could feel the ceremony as, as much. <laughs> but it almost uh, this almost sounds embarrassing. But I have a feeling it was like beer battered fish and chips, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of flake. <laughs> because do you know that um, so often as a vegan, I would go to the pub. And get like boiled veggies and hot chips. 
and, and no alcohol because they didn't drink at the time. Mm. And that was my way to try and to still connect with my mates and go to the pub. But I'm like, so I was having like terrible, terrible fats. I was having mm. bad fats in the chips. I was probably having, you know, who knows where those veggies were from. Mm. They could have been from China. Um, I would have been more likely to have had an Australian raised uh, animal mm. um, if I had had, you know, Whatever, whatever animal protein I'd chosen. But again, at the time, I had no concept, no yeah. idea of that, you know. But that's interesting in itself that, you know, the the um, the motivation or the 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 drive for you know not having taken meat out of the diet is is you know I'm I'm generalising a little bit to um, you know reduce suffering. Um, you know, for the animal, but also to reduce emissions of carbon and there's mm. sort of environmental and sort of size to that. Um, but when one looks into it, then, you know, that doesn't necessarily solve those problems. Correct. You know, I think that's the whole problem with any one thing. You know, you've spoken about this with your references to drawdown. There's not just one thing that can heal the planet, mm. you know, and I think it's almost, it's a, it's almost, um, it's, uh, it's, Self-fulfilling prophecy for for any vegan. Again, I was one for many years. To think that that one thing can be the cure all for yeah. everything. Mm. It's not how the universe has ever uh, been constructed. Well, it goes against the whole concept of biodiversity, diversity. Diversity, full stop. Like diversity yeah, for yeah. me is out the window. It's a buzzword, and all diversity mm. has come down to these days seems to be gender um, and sexuality. Uh, or maybe race. Are they are they you not know? the same thing? Do you know, gender and sexuality. No, yeah. no, so clearly not. It's it's really we have lost uh, the art. I don't want to get on my ranty high horse here, but we have lost the <laughs> art can. of accepting I'm, I'm, there. every single man and woman on this planet for being who they are, yeah. no matter how diverse their beliefs or behaviours yeah. might yeah. be. We are very quick to judge, and again, as a former journalist, that would be often writing the headlines for these stories like we're we're all in clickbait land mm. um and it, it, that that whole that whole premise of independent thought by the consumer has not, one it, it's not being taught in school and uh we've all become very almost like addicted to the clickbait and mm. we've forgotten to think independently about you know oh, well, can we still love people for being so diametrically opposed to us like mm. i think you and i have said this a number of times like we're not anti-vegan like we mm. love vegans like mm. i think it's actually great i can say in wellness that sickness gives wellness a purpose. Yeah. You can't just remove yeah, cool. all sickness. Uh, it gives you cool. something to, to stand on. I'm going to write that down. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table and we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Let's go to um, so that was that was a step forward. Oh, massive! Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think just as a just as a maturing adult as well. 
I think, mm. you know, we've both got children and I think you, you want, I, again, I, I laugh and go for that, you know, Maya grew up with very vegan parents for the first two or three years and Darby had a bit of that hangover and then Tommy and Spencer have both been born up here in Byron and hopefully they get to experience, well, four kids, but a diversity, mm. um, which I often think is hard living here as well, but even just uh, they, they'll experience a biodiversity that they couldn't have got back where we were living. Um, you know, I think that's, that's very important to us. Um, did did you did, did when you started eating meat again? Uh, I'm just fascinated because yeah, ask away. Um, did people go? Oh, what what are you what are you doing now? Or you look yes, different? Or that, well, it was more Sarah and I. And I think a lot of people, whenever they're faced with a, as Charlie Arnott would say, a tension event, mm. a lot of it comes down to, a, for want of a better term, an identity crisis or a question of identity. So you know, the running joke with veganism is you can tell a vegan within 30 seconds of meeting them because they would have told you. You know, it just comes up so quickly, and uh, it's true. Look, because I, I put my hand up, it came up very quickly. <laughs> oh, you, you know? well, you, yeah, you, uh, yeah, right. So that was was that your go to? Was that did you? No, feel it would like just you were it would that? just naturally. It would. I don't know what it is. I think it just seems to, to come that. up. I don't yeah. know if it's because you know whether you're eating or whether was it like oh the sky's really blue today. Yeah, I'm a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like, do you want to catch up for lunch? Like, well, it just as long as I have vegan options. Oh, okay. Cool. You know, yeah. it would just it just be. So I think uh, the courage to make any decision in life is really a question of are you prepared to let go of an identity that you've associated with for a period of time? You had to let go of an identity mm. that, you know, when you when you moved from, you know, commercial ag to region ag, like you've spoken about a number of times, mm. like that was an identity crisis that not everyone has the, I don't want to say the courage, but you know the tenacity or the or the the pull to actually do M- many people are, are far um more comfortable to just stick with an identity because it, they don't have to safe. change it it's safe it's easy yeah. i just it's I was almost out of laziness and i guess identity by its very definition gives them something to be that is which is an anchor point 100% you know Meaning, all my my friends yep. know me as that person Correct. so i don't have to try and you know less conflict is yep. there's a whole lot of so-called benefits for for retaining one's identity in, in that thing. So, exactly right. Yeah. So I think I think for us it was the courage to release that identity mm. and and just to be cool about it, not to be high maintenance. And I think also, you know, naturally people would ask questions, and we just ha- we were just happy to explain it. But we were also quite um, cert- like we were quite on the front foot to tell people we were still figuring it out as we went you know you know like like you we definitely started on fish first but we didn't know if we were going to go from fish to chicken to red meat like we didn't know we were just knew that we were no longer vegan mm. we were figuring it out and uh you can now invite us back to a dinner party and not worry about if we'll <laughs> if you'll have to make something else or you know i still i still feel like we we're oh marcus and sarah we love them but oh we're gonna cook another meal and oh they don't drink oh it's just did anyone just say bring your own just bring no, it no, oh, you know what is interesting, and this is another vegan gripe. <laughs> when we would bring our own to like big family functions, mm. we were always a little bit aggrieved at how much the meat eaters loved our vegan or vegetarian dishes oh, to the point good. I mean, good to, where they it. would I'm take, sure. they would eat it, and we'd be like, "Where's ours?" And it was all gone. <laughs> <laughs> we're all left with the steak, whilst all of the meat eaters are having the veggies. <laughs> That's quite funny. Isn't it? <laughs> that was just a little. Well, it says know, a lot about. Um, Sarah, well, and your cooking? You, you uh, cook? I, I like to. I, I have cooked less and less. The more kids we've had, the less cooking I seem to have done. Mm. Um, but yes, I do love. I do love to get in the kitchen when it's easy, and I don't have kids running all around me. You know? um, Sarah lets you in the kitchen. Yeah, she does absolutely. Good. Particularly at the moment because we can't travel, we're doing an international night every couple of weeks. So we did Japan awesome. the other night in in line with the Olympics. And so- <laughs> 
So did did um, so you, you you find a, a recipe? I do it with a, a, a child you, gets you, to choose. You the chef, uh, the international uh, chef. The child gets to pick their chef. Mm. So uh, Darby picked. Chose me and Tommy chose me, but Maya, who who picked Finland because they were doing Norse myths at school. They are too. Uh, yeah. She chose Sarah as her chef, so they'll go different into, nights though. Yeah, it's like every second Saturday night. Yeah, well, do you have to dress up? Uh, we we get a little fact fact sheet of the mm. country. We get the the flag. Yeah, I haven't done a dress up yet. I don't know if I'd. Uh... <laughs> Well, I you think, want to put a kimono on for Japan? <laughs> I think you should, and and dice the carrots with a samurai sword or something. Or catch one of our boys that accidentally kills someone, I reckon. Classic. No, that's it. That's the next. That's that's next level up. But I do think you know, listening to all of your work, I, I feel like it's a it's a human experience that we must embrace to get to know your food. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, Sarah gave me a cookbook for my birthday many years ago, and and I'd lived at home up until like we went to Europe, um, you know. So Sarah would go for it. I didn't know about paying bills and like just a, like the renter bills. Mm. I could pay my phone bill, but it was like mm. oh, you know, and anyway, all that stuff. But but Sarah gave me my first cookbook, and I made a mean. It was like a lamb cutlet with a with an apple mint sauce, and yeah. I rocked it. And I think from that point on, I was like, clearly we weren't vegan then. No. And uh, and and from then I was like, this is you know so much better than just pasta and a pre-made sauce. It was like there's a real art to food, and I think on a meditative level, food is a great stabilizer for your mental health, just for your heart rate, for so many things. It allows you just to be with your thoughts, and mm. um, you know, just the art of chopping. You know, the art of chopping, and I love seeing a master at work uh, in any in any field, food or or or, or different, but. You know, it can be very meditative. Sometimes it can be infuriating if it's a first-time meal, but even that in itself is a good growth opportunity. But I think <laughs> <laughs> there's something very special about um, food preparation. Um, I'm not owning, I'm not being emotionally attached to children liking it because I have a bit of a view that kids don't know good food. They know simple food. Yeah. Uh, but we're very much a meat and three-veg family. There's no fancy, fancy meals yet. Because they they still don't want a salad. They want the carrot cut and the yeah. celery cut and the cucumber cut and the tomatoes cut and the sprouts cut. But they just like to, you know, there's nothing too gourmet. No, it's a great point because we're similar, and you know, oh, I sometimes struggle with with that. Like I think, oh, how long? When do they stop doing that? Because you know, you go to a restaurant and it's, you're not. You, I mean, you can't really go. Oh, mate, can I have? Um, just a carrots like that and the lettuce all by itself and sitting up there and, you know, so I guess there comes a point in time where, yeah. I don't know, pushing kids to explore other flavours and tastes and foods and yeah. there's no right or wrong way around that. How just on food, Any? what are your thoughts on, I mean, how, I guess, you know, Kids, kids will follow their parents' lead. So, what, what is there any? What, and in your experience in travelling around the world, is there any way that you, and how to, how to, how to adults, how can they, or can they, change their appreciation of food? And, and is, it, is it, is it, often, um, you know, events that are um, not good events that change that attitude? Is it sort of just stumbling into these things? You know, is there because it's you know, do you mean seeing the sacredness of yeah, food? the, the yep. reverence and actually yep. you know like you just said a minute ago about the the the, the meditation or the therapy or the, the 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 beauty of chopping up something you know in a, in a you know in a way that is um, you know in an aware way yeah how do we get people to do that I think I'm just 
scanning the book. So in 2019, more than 130 million Americans consumed frozen dinners. The name TV dinner was created in 1953, which is as a status, like it became a status symbol. Um, what has got the MTV dinner? No, no, just a TV dinner. Oh, TV dinner, So, right, so right. people would buy their meal pre-made yeah. and sit in front of the TV and, and yeah. so watch TV. And, or something. Yeah, um, but you didn't have to do anything. You just have to st- stick it in there. <clears throat> no. And I think we have, um, statistically, we eat 50% of our main meals and 70% of our snacks alone. Now, I'm not worried about eating snacks alone, but 50% of our main meals are eaten alone. Mm. For me, that defeats and again in, in in traveling and looking at longevity cultures like food is meant to be enjoyed together in many ways it almost defeats the whole purpose yeah. eating food alone now again i understand that more and more of us live by ourselves but that doesn't stop us from having people over for dinner in these covert times it doesn't stop us from having a, a zoom dinner where you just catch up with a friend it can be one-on-one and just because other times, if we don't make these efforts to eat alone, we tend to end up eating more quickly, poorer quality food because it's like it's just for us. So we, for some reason, have it's less like, pride like, in the it's food. Like, it's that, just like fuel. I'm hungry. Eat. Yeah, fill up. Yeah, and it's and it, it's less of an occasion. Mm. And I think that I love um, I love the simplicity. And the reverence of food, like it doesn't have to be complicated, but gee whiz, we've got to master the art of bringing people to the dining table. Mm. When I've been to your place, you've got the heaviest dining table. Because it like, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's not a cheap and nasty, like it just goes to show, it's almost mm. reflective mm. of how immovable that rhythm or, um, or the ritual, that, that ritual yeah. is of eating together. Mm. It's like kids, like this is where, this is where, we're, this is where mm. we're eating. And I think, um, We've lost that art, and it does sadden me a, a bit, but I, I, I know in my family we just make sure that we're eating at the table. And sometimes it drives me wild. The kids are wriggly and they're moving around, and it, sometimes it's over in five minutes. Mm. But it's, it's a lot better than eating in front of the TV and the kids not conscious, not, not present with their food and not present with the TV because they're just kind of stuck in no man's land. And I'm all right with that every now and again. I'm not, again, I'm not extreme anymore, 2006 I was. Mm. But... Um, I think as a, on the whole, we've just got to simplify and have a respect for food that, again, modern society doesn't really encourage. There's a great book, and I can't remember the name of it. I haven't read it, but a friend of mine, um, Courtney McGregor, told me about it, and then she read, read it and, and then initiated the the um, suggested uh, practices in it about – it was called something like um, – so it was French and it was about – how to feed your children? Yeah, right. I'm well, so not going to get it right. Have you yeah. read the book? No, but my my number one my number one mantra with nutrition is by a Frenchman, Roche Foucault. Yeah, and it is to eat is a necessity, but to eat intelligently is an art. Is an art. And I think we got have, right. Yeah, we? we must learn to eat intelligently because we all know it's necessary, but we're not really doing it all that intelligently. We've lost the art of food. Well, the art that they, of food that they were prescribing was um, instead of just like putting the food in front of the kids and it's just like chowing in that, that there was a there was theatrics and there was a bit of flair and a bit of art to it you know that that courtney would come in and say now tonight we're going to eat uh we've got some carrot and we've got some cucumber and the cucumbers just come down from you know, down from down the road and i'll make you know and actually make some a thing about what's in front of them as opposed yeah. to just fuel and i'm just totally. going to totally and she said it was great as you even say that i know we could do a whole lot better at that I just go in there. These, these, these are the avocados from Kate this week, kids. Aren't they? Aren't they divine? Mm, you don't, know, don't shave with them. Yeah, seriously, don't ever, ever, <laughs> ever put that quality avocado down the bathroom sink. Um, 
But, yeah, I think that's a really good idea is almost just like, you know, part of giving grace before a meal is mm. to thank the growers and to and, and hopefully we, we know them. Like, you know, I've really learnt that strongly. Uh, I, I put that in the book from you, just how important it is to just know where your food's coming from. It's no use getting... Well, you know, getting quinoa from Ecuador, mm. like when we've got great Australian rice growing here or there's no use getting you know, particularly meat from overseas when we've just got so much good quality, mm. you know, meat in our own backyard. And I just think it's a really, particularly as a family culture, like just teaching your children because we all realise like how much we are like our mum and dad mm. as we get older, Responges. you know, so and you can't deny a lot of those things. So it's so important to consider you know, what are you injecting into your children philosophy, culturally as a family around food? What standards are we creating? What's mm. normal in the in, in the you know in, in the kitchen, in the on the dining table? Yeah. So our daughter Maya tried to not have breakfast the other day. First time in eleven years. And I was I was kind of guffawing that, you know, breakfast has become the antichrist of the modern mm. diet. It used to be the most important meal of the day. Mm. Break your fast. Now it's like don't eat breakfast, it's the devil. Mm. You know, you'll you you, you, you you won't be able to go into ketosis if you have breakfast and you'll put on weight and, you know. And I was attempting, you know, I was like, you can't make me eat. And I was like, no, we can't make you eat. But there are consequences to mm. not eating, mm. you know, and we're not with you at school and all the rest of it. And I think she felt the consequences of it. But I think, you know, we've got to be really mindful, you know, what what cultural trends are we buying into and are we reflecting those trends to our children and people around us? Um I'm a bit anti-fatty these days. I don't really mm. – I kind of go for – I just go, it's just another marketing machine mm. uh, and that's okay. Um, you know, I still I still maintain that coffee, wine and chocolate. You look at every 100-year-old graceful ager, they're all having coffee, wine and chocolate. And, and, and someone out there is trying to tell you to stop having coffee and stop drinking that's wine it. and stop having chocolate. And there's counter-reports and there's, you know, experiments. It's like, no, oh, it's no good. I want to get to that. Um just to jump back to your, because this is, um, um, we've, you've been touching on it here and there. I want to get to the book um, and why you why you wrote the book. But just, was there, is there anything between putting that bit of battered fish in your mouth and and starting to pen that book that we needed? Oh, you know, yeah. Any, any moments I, yes, of, I, you know, of, of tension? Yes, or I love this actually. Great point because I missed this point out. So I'm reading a book one night called Healthy at 100 by a man called John Robbins. Now, John Robbins. Uh, was the heir to the throne of Baskin Robbins ice cream. He's almost like the Charlie Arnott you told me of America. Story. Your Arnott's biscuits. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. You've gone into Regen Ag. That's you know, it. John Robbins, Baskin Robbins, grew up having ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. Literally had a swimming pool in the shape of an ice cream cone. Um, <laughs> the heir to the throne of a multi billion dollar mm. company. And uh, one not, day. That's not quite me. <laughs> well, if we do the, the there, scales, were no, there were no scales. pools in the yeah. shape of a Tim Dam, but I mean. <laughs> um, but if we look back at what he did, he said to his mm. mum and dad, he said, "Look, uh, his uncle um, uh, uh, Bert Baskin had died of, uh, I think it was heart disease. Um, his dad, Irv Robbins, um, had diabetes, um, mm. and he said, Dad, I don't want to create the thirty-second flavor of ice cream. I don't want to take over the family business. He's the only son." He literally ostracized himself from the family and all of the wealth and comfort mm. that came with it and went out in the backyard of Canada with his then girlfriend, now wife, and they meditated and they grew cabbage and they sprinkled kale seeds and they did taught yoga for gold coin donations and just 
literally off the grid. Mm. And he became a major authority in the vegan world. He wrote Diet for a New America, which Tony Robbins was a massive proponent of at UPW. And then he wrote Food Revolution. And and then he wrote this book called Healthy at 100. And I'm like, I'm a vegan. I'm going to be healthy at 100. John Robbins has written the book. And I got to the second page. Maya... Um, Maya was a newborn. Uh, she must have been, maybe she was one. I still remember Sarah was going to bed at night, you know, breastfeeding early to bed. I was reading 30 books a year. I was just consuming mm. stuff and I was loving it. And I was on the second page of the introduction, like not even page one of the proper book, thinking that, you know, confirmation bias, this book is just going to tell me that being vegan is the, the reason, the way to be healthy at 100. Second page of the introduction, he refers to a study done by the Yale School of Public Health and it asked 600, um, uh, men and women over the course of 20 years as you age you become less useful agree or disagree as you age you become more of a burden on society agree or disagree as you age you realise your best years are behind you do you agree or disagree uh, what the study found was that uh, these people that believed that as they aged their best years were behind them they were a burden on society um, that their quality of life declined and all the rest of it they died seven and a half years earlier than the people that had an empowered view of aging. Mm. Seven and a half years. They didn't measure their wealth. They didn't measure their family. They didn't measure their genes, their DNA, their exercise levels, and they didn't measure their diet. All they measured was a belief. And this was my tension event because this for me was, Mm. I literally had, I can remember it like it was yesterday, I had a shiver run down my spine. I remember going, oh my gosh, what if everything I've thought up until now has been wrong? But as a journalist, it's actually really freeing because, like, oh, I can go down the research rabbit hole and instead of researching why this guy tore his hamstring off the bone, I'm going to go and research why do people live a great long life because we don't have many mentors in ageing well. We go, oh, yeah, Auntie Shirley, she died at 75. Yeah. From, she drank this. Like, we don't – if you go, who do you know that's ageing gracefully? Many people don't have any more than – one or two or three on their hand. So I started a podcast with Damien Christoph. He was 39, scared of turning 40. Mm. And he was omnivorous and I'm vegan. I'm still like, oh, but we'll still find that veganism is a secret to centenarianism and all the rest of it. You weren't going to let it go. No, I was going to let it go. I was a hardcore vegan, mate. I couldn't <laughs> be wrong that quickly. But I was very curious to see if I was. And, and we were interviewing... <laughs> A number of people, and uh, I still remember episode 30, and I, I say this now because he only died a couple of weeks ago. Episode 30 was with Dexter Kruger, who was Australia's oldest man, um, mm. and he died two weeks ago at age 111. No. Now, you would like to know Why this. Why did he know about I mean, I don't know the news. You're right? going to love this because Dexter Kruger overtook Jack Lockett as Australia's oldest man. Jack Lockett was a World War One veteran. Wow. The, two, the thing that they both have in common, they both died at 111, but they were both farmers. There you they go. They were both farmers. So Working there's longevity. Hard, up with the Being on the chickens, land. Up with the roosters. Um, and, and Dexter was also a veterinary mm. surgeon. But the reason why I talk about Dexter is he broke, he broke all the food rules. Coffee and cake for morning tea, coffee and cake for afternoon tea, <laughs> coffee at midnight, um, you know, all of the, all of the, anyone that's, you know, low fat, he'd have all the drippings, you know, he'd have, he'd always, he'd, 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 he'd laughed at us because we didn't know what some form of a pig's nose delicacy was. He was mm. kind of laughing because he, he, he probably, you know, would have raised these pigs and killed these pigs and, mm. and made delicacies. But he was, um, he would recite poetry to us. He wrote 13 books and he died. I delivered a, I did delivered a copy of the book to him and he died. 24 hours before it arrived, but he also died 24 hours before his own autobiography arrived, oh, uh, age 111. Wow. And so, so when you interviewed him, 
how long ago was it? Like, well, we've interviewed he? him two or three times. I think we interviewed him when he was 103 or four, wow. and then maybe when he was 107 or eight. Yeah. And then we were going to interview him when his autobiography came out, uh, but he passed away. Um, but that'd, that, be, that'd be a good yarn. That was great yarn, great chat, and, and incredible man. But the, that podcast was the overwhelming evidence of how wrong I was and was the foundation of what came to be the book because from all of the guests that we would interview, we began to see a rhythm or a pattern that longevity came down to doing what you love, uh, moving regularly and having a great social life Mm. and your quality of life, not necessarily your quantity of life, but your quality of life, which is what we really want more than quantity of life, is your nutrition and it being an art, not just what you eat, but how you eat and who you eat it with. And your family life, uh, your growth, just your enthusiasm to mm. learn and grow more, mm. and your wealth. They can all add a great level of quality to your life. And then I put a big circle around that, and that's your spirit. Because you've got to put your spirit into your yeah. work and your movement Everything. and your social yeah. and all the areas yeah. of your life. And so that became the Exceptional Life Blueprint. That became the, it's the way the book has been organized into those eight levels of life. But 26 of the guests uh, have been featured in the book directly, you being one of them. And uh, it features 64 exceptionals, as I call them, um, throughout the book. But, yeah, 26 of them were, were on the podcast. So that was probably the big bridge between, oh, my gosh, I'm going to stop being vegan, but what happens next? And that that, that, that really was the, the catalyst for it. Can I go back, Step? <clears throat> that, that's a big um, – you had to let go of uh, years of paradigms. Oh, 100%. Yeah, a um, lot of paradigms. Yeah. And, and it's not as though you were bashed over the head by someone else. You know, you, you came to that point um, voluntarily because you read stuff, you listened to someone. I still um, think no one would ever want a journalism degree these days, but I'm so glad I did it <laughs> because, because it because made me could... intensely curious. I think I've always been curious by nature, mm. but I think that, that indeed me to it be for it to be normal, to be curious. We can either be curious or judgmental in life. There's not really much in between. You're yeah, either uh, looking at people making statements about them, you know, I don't like their dress, they don't look cool, uh, they don't earn enough money, or you can be curious. I wonder how they're going, you know, are they okay? Um, so there's there's one of two ways, and I think I've been blessed to be far more of the curious um, than the judgmental. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm not, I'm not immune to judgment. I was a great judger, particularly in the vegan non-grog days. Um, because I thought there was only one way to live. If I've learned anything from these interviews over the years, there are infinite ways to live an exceptional life, and we can't uh, think that uh, there's just uh, one, you know, fountain of youth. That there's one nirvana that we're all looking for. I think the sooner we can recognise, and as hard as it is, um, you know, uh, with what's going on in the world at the moment, but you know, we are in heaven on earth right now. Wherever you are right now is a heaven on earth, and the sooner we can, you know, wrap ourselves around that belief, I think the sooner we can live our exceptional life. Um, let's go there then, Marcus. What are some of the what are some of the the tips? I mean, there's so many tips in your book, and, and sort of you know, um, I guess ideas for people to get to get their head to to to, to engage with. What are some I don't know. How do you want to break it down? Is there, is there sort of um, how, how well? Do you I think that? would you say a lot of your listeners, you know, are and viewers, they're in their working lives, they're in their career. I think that's probably a good place to start because mm. our life purpose is either it's a combination of, of what you do and who you are. But yeah. we get very built into this um, lifestyle of the human doing and not the human being. Yeah. But really, the the art of life is both. Um, so. Can we cultivate this determination to 
do what we love and love what we do. And sometimes that's not in the perfect job, but how can we still see it for um, the you know, the bigger purpose it is. I often look at hospitality as a perfect thing. It may not be your perfect job, but gee whiz, it's nice to deal with a nice barista or a nice maitre d'. You know, Sam here at the farm or going to get our coffee somewhere in town. Like, I just love that human engagement and that comes from someone's employment. So you don't have to run a million-dollar business. No. You can be earning 20, 30 bucks an hour and still searching for what your reason for being is. But it doesn't mean that you have to bring a mediocre version of yourself to work. You can still be working a job that's not quite your ticket yeah, yet, totally. but you can bring the best version of yourself to that role. Can I just jump in? That's a really good point, and I love the, the reference to hospitality because I, I did two years in a pub in Sydney when I left university. Um, never planned to. I said to my mum, I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I leave uni and whether have a break or go and work. And blah, blah. She said, I'll go and work in a pub. Couldn't believe that even came out of my mother's mouth. <laughs> I went, I had a job in two seconds. Um, but for me, that... Um, the the experience of hospitality, dealing with customers, good, bad, and ugly, um, responsibility, you know, um, so many different aspects of that hospitality world set me up, I think, well, I, f- I feel, foundational staff for um, socially, um, yeah. economically, um, uh, you know, in a community. There was a community around this pub, yeah. you know, and just engaging with people and dealing with things. You know, it was a great little... Petri dish of life. That's a great call. And that's what I feel like work can... And I think a lot of people have been challenged by that when they've had to work remotely. I know I'll put my hand up. I've really struggled working from home Mm. uh, because of that engagement. It's just a very simple thing. It's a very simple thing. And it doesn't matter, like you said, if it's at a a pub or if it's in an office or if it's in retail. It's learning Mm. how to communicate with human beings. And some of them are very different to you. You know, whether totally. it's different ages That's in a, in a thing, pub, whether they're, mm. whether they're drunk, tipsy, or they've just arrived. And if they've just arrived, if they've had a tough day at work and maybe their manners aren't as sharp as what they normally would be, and do you go curious or judgmental on that? <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? But these you are all a bit of a game. It was a really 100%. Good, yeah, yeah. Not, 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 not to win or lose, but more, you know... That's a, it's a, it's a great point. You know, someone will walk in and you go, now how am I going to handle this person? And go, what do they need right now? And how can I make the experience here tonight or today... You know, how can I send them out that door with yeah. a smile on their face? You know? And imagine if we were all more hospitable, mm. uh, to pardon the pun, in our no, dealings totally. with human beings right now. That's totally. that's why it is such a great grounding for how to live. My mum mm. had a cafe in uh, Ligon Street, Melbourne, for many years. I was not allowed to work there. I think it might have been gender discrimination, but I won't say it as fact. <laughs> but my sisters could work there and I couldn't. Um, but maybe she thought I got my hospitable groundings in media more than uh, in cafes. Um, but but my mum is a, is a fabulous socialiser. Uh, mm. She's a great fun at a party. Yeah. And my sisters are the same. And I think I think hospitality has a really big and that comes back to food you know like mm. food if you want to improve your social skills have lunch or dinner with someone yeah. like and just master the art of conversation mm. i was always one of the first books i think my parents spoke about was dale carnegie's how to win friends and influence people great book, great book you know mm. and still to this day like a timeless classic mm. Mm. um and for anyone that deals with human beings on a daily basis, it's almost essential reading. Got to read it. Because it's, it is an art to engage. And again, we spoke about diversity before. It's an art to engage with human beings, particularly if there's diversity in your beliefs and behaviours. With the COVID, current COVID show, you know, hospitality is doing it tough. You know, because, you know, to your point, um, it's a place where people engage. It's a, it's a, it's a place of community. 
and and that's being eroded right now. You know, that's that's it's, it's very sort of, difficult to watch. It's, it's been yeah. it's you know it really highlights the critical role and function that the hospitality industry um, is and has played in um, in in mankind. I mean, in in our in our species. You think about you know going back some centuries to um, the pubs or the you know the state the stables where people would turn up at night. The and meeting the, place. The meeting place. You yeah. know, you know, and, and there's all so many different versions of that. Back you know stepping back in time and. You know, we so we are social creatures, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, and and for many of us, we either don't feel comfortable going to a meeting place, mm. or that meeting place is harder to have that same social connection that it that it once did. And you know, this is we're not here to judge what's going on at the minute. I think we're all just hopeful that uh, we can have that back um, sooner rather than later. I just I just feel feel for people that don't have jobs that they once did, and for people that want to consume and deliver to the local economy but find it a little bit more difficult to do so. Well, if we can go there just a little bit, because, yeah. you know, I, I you know, I, I think about this more than I probably talk about it, but... Yes, you know, and I'm the same, so maybe we'll both unleash you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I try and keep it really simple and go, okay, if, if, if this whole COVID um, lockdown situation or, you know, the, the whole topic, let's just put it in one big basket here, um, is essentially about... Um, stopping people dying, right? Reducing death yeah. in the population, whether it's a town, it's a city, it's a country, it's a state, whatever it is, you know. We, we uh, as a species, I think that everyone can agree, we're trying to, the, the pl- things being put in place are about reducing death. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to push my buttons here, Charlie. Well, I mean, and, and this is, and this is, this is, this is, you know, this is what we're talking about in your book, you know. Yeah. It, it's about when we, rem- <laughs> I guess I'll cut to the chase. I mean, I don't know that less people are dying in the community because of what's happening. Oh, I suspect more people are. On the news tonight, are. an 85-year-old woman has died from COVID in Sydney. I mean, honestly. Well, is, I mean, that, I, is that the biggest world shock going on? That an 85-year-old woman that's probably had diabetes for 30 years and, and other things. Hmm. It's no surprise our life expectancy in Australia is 82.3 years. And if you ask anyone, anyone, mm. and that's number fourth on the ladder in all the world. Mm. And if you ask anyone. Really, Australia is. Yeah, we're fourth on the longevity ladder. But yeah. we, we suck at uh, quality of life. We're getting down to 15th on the ladder. So we have 72 quality years statistically, um, and then it all goes pear-shaped from there. We're, then we're reliant on the health system and Correct. We're on, and- we're on 16 medications a day, and we're in and out of hospital, and our social life revolves around doctor's appointments. And, mm. you know, there'd be people listening to this that have uh, uh, are doing that for their parents. Mm. You know, just going from one to the other, and it's infuriating. But you know, I think my media head does not enjoy seeing what's being presented mm. uh, purely because um, if you want your exceptional life, <laughs> when you and I are ninety, ninety-five, a hundred, mm. if our quality of life declines, mm. um, I'm pretty sure I'll be like, just find a pillow and pop it over my head, please. <laughs> I don't want to hang around for ten years. <laughs> do, do I don't want to hang around for ten years. Now, some people are different, though. Yeah. Some people want. Oh, no, just keep me alive. My dad, uh, God love him, he's my best mate. Mm. He would just do anything to stay alive. Yeah. You know, he just, that's just, that's just him. Even even if the quality was, was diminishing. He's you know. just, I'm not sure what it is. As I said, mm. we've all lived different life experiences. Um, but I know like when my uncle Doug was dying, um, he had a major kidney malfunction and there was a lot of internal bleeding going on. And like the writing was on the wall, but I still remember my dad going, "Just do whatever you can to keep him alive." Yeah, right. and I, I still remember it, like going, "No, this is the it's done." Like, mm. but we're all wired a little bit differently. That's why I say I have great empathy for anyone that 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 wants to keep people alive. But if you just look at nature, it's not it's not natural. 
it's not a natural way. You would have experienced this in heart-wrenching um, times on the farm, I have mm. no doubt. But you know that giving someone a lowered quality of life or a living being a lowered quality of life for any just longer to, yeah. than they have to is just, it's its almost inhumane. It's in, it is irresponsible, really. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know. Whether it's a cow or a person. That's the whole point. And I think that's where philosophically, I'm happy to have this conversation with people. I just find that a lot of people aren't as happy to have it mm. because we've lost a bit of our art of conversation, our mm. ability to have, you know, Diversity and uh, again a conversation rather than an argument. I think. Well, I guess also the 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 the, the um, atmosphere of these conversations in in you know in the main major media outlets there is none. There is it's it's one sided no. and no. you know in a community or in a situation you have to tread. It's a very sensitive topic. Yeah. Um. And, and look, I understand it, but I think we all should be grown up enough to have it without. Taking it too personally, and you know, making making enemies of each other just because because it's someone's opinion. It gets back to your, you know, being curious or, or, or judgmental. Or judgmental. And it's, yeah, it's a tricky world to have an opinion in at the moment because if it's not the right opinion, so to speak, um, yes, many are shut down. And this is the fascinating thing, <clears throat> isn't it? About like, there's a part, you know, there's an extreme element of the population who are very on the case about tolerance. Yes. There must be tolerance of people's choices to be this, that, the other, whether it's race or it's gender or, you know, sexual preference, whatever it is. It's always about tolerance. You know, we've got to we've got to embrace diversity and all that sort of stuff. Agree. But then when you might have a conversation with said person about your opinion, then they're so not tolerant no. of your your view if no. it doesn't if it clashes with theirs. Yeah. It's like, hang on, were you just saying that? Oh no, no, no. But hang on, you know, tolerant just some of the time, <laughs> as long as it's I can be tolerant yeah. of I can be tolerant of your choices if as long as they're the same as mine. Yeah, and um, it, it you know I'm sure in your world with all of your workshops and your dealings with farmers, you are working with a lot of farmers that are, you know, looking at crossing the bridge, but maybe not. Uh, from commercial ag to region ag, you deal with commercial ag. Um, you know many commercial ag. Mm. Now you don't yeah. hate them, no. you know. Now you don't think that they're wrong or bad or stupid. I or, was. I know. did most of my life as a as a as a as an industrial farmer. Absolutely, yeah. I know exactly where they've been. So I just find it interesting that in this COVID conversation, that anyone that has a different way of looking at things is wrong and stupid and haven't read the research and don't Irres- know the science irresponsible and, irresponsible and mm. how dare you not do your bit for the community or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, diversity is a wonderful thing. Like it's so, mm. if you had everyone exactly the same, which sometimes feels like that's how people want it to yeah. be, yeah. life would not be worth living. No. No. Well, I'm sure in, in where you've been. Now tell us about that one, your travels around the world. So, um, Interviews with wonderful people exploring the, the, the art and science of longevity. Um, it took you overseas. Absolutely. There was a, you know, Liz Hayes, 60 Minutes. Mm. She went to Hazy. This, Hazy. Hazy. She went to this little Greek island called Ikaria, uh, named after Icarus. What and for 60 Minutes? Is for it? 60 Minutes. Oh, so really? It was back yeah. in like 2014, I think. Yeah. And um, we had our chiropractic centre at the time and one of Sarah's patients sent me a text message. She, we must have started 100 Not Out, the podcast. And so mm. she knew I was into longevity. And she said, you know, when you used to get those text messages, bang on Channel 9 right now, you know, pop on ABC, this show's on. Mm. But it doesn't happen anymore because, you know, you just <laughs> watch it on Ivy or something. But um, she sent a message, you know, pop it onto Channel 9, Liz Hayes is in Icaria. And I remember watching it thinking, 
we've got to go there. Yeah. And um, and long story short, a year or two later, we were we were over there, and um, we took a group of people over there um, and observed National Geographic really brought these blue zones or these longevity epicenters to um, to the mainstream, I suppose. Uh, Dan Butner wrote a book called uh, The Blue Zones, and Oprah interviewed him. So when Oprah interviews you, you go viral. Boom, you go berserk, uh, yeah. and and for good reason. I mean, the blue zones are a fabulous. Um, it's, it, you know, I think it's a fabulous kind of what, what is study. The blue zones are places in the world that experience greater longevity and quality of life than anywhere else on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why they're called the blue zones is because when they found these places, they put little blue stickers on the map of the world and just referred <laughs> to them as well. So there's no magic behind uh, why they're called blue zones, not because it's a special colour of the ocean or anything. There's no aura, blue aura. No, or no blue aura or anything. Um Crazy. So there's there's five of them. There's Sardinia in Italy, Ikaria in Greece. There's Nicoya in Costa Rica, Okinawa in Japan, and Loma Linda, which is a Seventh Day Adventist community in uh, California. Um, vegetarian and vegan, but not all of them. Not all of them. So we so, go to sorry, so Seventh Day Adventist. Is that they traditionally not not eating meat? Not yeah, eating meat. traditionally. So some sneak a bit, a bit yep. of jerky. I around. think uh, I think only four percent of Loma Linda is vegan. So, oh, okay. yeah, I don't think it's known as like the vegan blue zone, but again, I think that's more marketing than anything else. Yeah, right. Um, break it down. Break yeah. it down. So <clears throat> we went to we've been to Ikaria three or four times. First time was in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. But it's remarkable when you watch something on TV versus when you you know experience something for yourself. And every one of us have had one of these experiences where you get somewhere and there's a, a there is an awe or a magic. Ikaria or the locals of Ikaria will tell you that it either pulls you in or it spits you out. It's a, it is a different world. It's like going back in time, 50 or 60 years is the way that I explain it. The way that they have no, um, it's almost like no awareness, but they don't do time. And you know when we talk about Fiji time or Byron time, yeah. like Ikaria time, time. It's a totally different. Mm-hmm. Broom time. It's a totally, it, it feels different to any of those times mm. um they buy a dynamic farm just naturally without even thinking about it they were making water mills that were uh, that were created in accordance to the uh by the moon you know centuries ago without again without it having a, a title so to speak mm. they socially they'll get up from work and have festivals and people will travel you know two or th- you know two hours from one side of the island to the other for a local fundraiser you know, where they've got boiled goat and roast goat and goat broth and hot chips and good bread and olive oil and great wine. and yeah. But they'll do it like their whole culture is so built on everyone else. There's about 100 little villages in Ikaria, about 75, you know, on average per village. So everyone in the village knows each other. Um they have a great reverence for food and but a great simplicity for it. But, you know, little things like in Australia, we have the amaranth grain, but in Ikaria they have the greens, they have the head of the amaranth plant and they would they would put them in olive oil and garlic and salt and they would just have, you know, um, just grilled amaranth. And, and they would have – but that's and that's like just a part of their meal. They would mm. serve all their meals family style and they would bring everyone together and everyone yeah. picks what they want. No one judges or why aren't you having the bread? Didn't you like my goat? You know, they all just <laughs> they all just dig in, you know, and it's messy and it's loud, but it's so convivial and it's just so uh, you look at it like the little kids are sitting next to the grandfathers or the mm. grandmothers and they're mm. having arguments and it's not like you don't talk to your elders like that. It's like, no, yeah. I disagree, yeah. you know, with what Pa's saying. You know, and it's um 
very active. They walk everywhere. Oh, they, you know, they don't rate cars. Cars are just not a... I mean, they're there, but they would happily walk for an hour to yeah. a friend's house. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? Sometimes they go, oh, imagine. Imagine walking to Mullum. Or imagine walking... Like, we just would never... No, so it's not. It's not the first thing you think of, is it? When no. you're going, going so, over to go somewhere. Often, we we had an attendee come that uh, instead of driving fifteen minutes to work, she or was it? Was she getting a tram? Anyway, she just started walking an hour and fifteen minutes to mm, work, mm. and then she would either walk home or get a tram home if you know mm. whatever. But um, it's one of those places where it's so simple that it's almost like no supermarkets, no big chains, nothing that you or I are used to. Uh, that it's almost it, it feels like a time warp. Um, you cannot find a big name to save yourself. I don't, but it, it feels like it's so simple that sometimes you can leave feeling a bit flat at how complicated life or the world has got. But then there's also the art of, and really for for us when we're there with with other with a group, it's actually like teaching them and workshopping with them. Well, what shifts are they going to make when they come home? So for me, it's like I no longer wear a watch. Yeah. I realised that I would check my watch all the time, and you'd almost have an emotional response to the time. I'm yeah. early for this. Well, I'm shit. late for that. Yeah, all yeah, of that. Yeah. Uh, I took well, I took the time off the off the laptop. You know, meals largely now family style. Not every mm. time. Um, making more of an effort to socialise. Just yeah. you know, consciously, consciously. So, like, so, so what, what, what does that look like for you? Oh well, for me, every it used to be every Friday, but I actually struggled to keep that commitment. But at least once a fortnight, mm. having like a Friday lunch with no agenda, yeah. like not a business. I need to talk to you about this, but like just catching up with someone. Like I have, a, I'm a bit of a goal oriented person, you know. So it's like every month I've caught up with two exceptional human beings for lunch. Um, not because I have to, yeah. just because it, even coming here today, it's I was good. feeling a bit flat coming in. Yeah. Here, and I feel so much better. You sound better. Just having the conversation. Yeah, cool. Uh, it, and, and that is just the gift of a social life. And mm. it's not about being extroverted or introverted. If you know you're an introvert, you're far better with one-on-one dynamics. Yeah. If you know you're an extrovert, you want you know ten people around the table and you want to razzle dazzle. But I think um, Ikaria is very good at teaching anyone that's open to learning just what's important in life, and mm. that it's it's never a complicated outcome. Mm. Um, it's never something that, oh, you need a PhD in order to work this out. Looking at, at, at Ilya, the way he plants, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to take you there just to see the way Will that he plants. Will we get back there, do you think? What, 2045, we... ScoMo's announced the borders opening. <laughs> it's official. <laughs> it's official. Oh, that, that soon. Yeah, that soon. <laughs> I know, a bit early. Uh, I'll be 64. <laughs> Paul McCartney went on 64. <laughs> um, oh, no. Yeah, no, but I'd love to, I'd love to be able to. Back there, let's not uh, wait. Let's not wait that long. No, tell me. Um, so that so that so your trip there was it was no doubt a sort of a um a very eye opening experience. How what have you taken from that trip to other? Uh, you've been to other blue zones. We were due to go to Sardinia in twenty twenty, but again, COVID. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, from your career in person and from your other experiences and and life and readings. Tell us, tell us about more about what's in the book. What, what can you know? What, what, have, what have you, what have you put on paper that people can? I mean, it's, it's a, yeah. There's a lot in there, so we don't have that much time to go Absolutely. through every page. But tell, what, are, what are some of the, the sort of the go-to things that, that people can can take home? Well, I think for the people who like the detail, it is split up into part one: your exceptional longevity. 
which is your your career, your movement, and your social life. Part two is your exceptional quality of life, your nutrition, your your family, your growth, and your wealth. And then part three is your exceptional spirit. So, yeah. if people are looking for a book that's easy to stop every couple of pages, I don't like books that are so long that you never know when to stop. Mm. It's a book that hopefully is a timeless classic. I wrote the book because if my kids, if I got hit by a bus, I'd want my kids to know what I thought on how to live. Yeah, and I don't want them to think that. Family is everything for longevity. I think a lot of people feel like family comes first. I think it's really important that we recognize as human beings that we come first. We're, we're an individual. You yeah. are the most important person in your world. Yeah. You are the most important person in your world. So you've got to create your exceptional life before you can raise others to live theirs or help others to live theirs or just it's so important to I think know the difference. I suppose the book is an eye-opener in what is the difference between exceptional and mediocre. You know, I read that there. Yeah, the um, from mediocre to exceptional. Yeah, so there is a difference. Like for mm. for the for the exceptionals, um, it's movement. For yeah. for people that feel like it's mediocre, it's exercise. And why is that a difference? Because yeah. exercise for many feels like a chore. Yeah, movement is something that feels like a choice. And so these are the the little hacks for one better term. I don't like that word, but these are little subtle differences in paradigm around. Oh well, how do you love to move? Like if you don't love triathlon, don't do it. Mm. But maybe you actually do like swimming. You know, yeah. or maybe you like dancing, maybe you like farming. What I've found in a lot of longevity research is how important or um, common gardening is mm. in people that live a great long life. So we're building at the moment. I'm determined to become one of the great urban gardeners. <laughs> There'll be a great regen, mini forest happening. Um, You'll have triffids and all sorts of stuff. Oh, right I'm now. telling you, I'll be calling you every five minutes. <laughs> Charlie! <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I think it's important that we recognize the differences. So with socializing, you know, if you're exceptional, you feel connected. But if you feel mediocre, you can go borderline depression. Mm. You look at people that work a long life and all their social life was in their work or career and then mm. they stopped. Yeah. And they're on a slippery slope to depression very quickly. With nutrition, um, when it's exceptional, you've got energy. But if it's mm. mediocre, 33% of all cancer and all uh, diabetes is from, is from obesity. Yeah. So we've got disease as a mm. mediocre consequence if we don't if we don't improve our the art and the way that we eat with family. Um, again, we feel loved if we've got a great family dynamic. You yeah. want to have a great Christmas day. You don't want to be worried about Uncle Jack and what's going to happen there with Auntie Mary and all the rest. Are you going to offend or who you should or shouldn't advise? Yeah. yeah, if you can that whole question of diversity. If you can appreciate the diversity in your family dynamic. You're in for a really great quality of life because you've got a lot of family time. Birthdays. Marriages, yeah. funerals, yeah. Christmas days, family get-togethers. Like, you're with your family a lot, depending on where you live, of course. But I think it's really important that we recognize that um, if, it's not, if it's not exceptional, we run the risk of being bitter, like literally bitter and twisted. Mm. And I've seen it a lot. I speak a lot about forgiveness in the family section. But what I'm also finding is, and people nod their head when I share this anecdotal research from Harvard, people that have average or distant relationships with their mum and or dad are 90 to 100% likely to have a medical crisis in their midlife. Now, no one would ever draw the link between the relationship with your parents and your physical health. Mm. But when you look at this Harvard research, people in their midlife, that I think it's like 82% of people that had a poor relationship with, with, with their mum had a midlife medical crisis and then it was like 84% of people that had it with a dad but 100% that had a distant or strange relationship with both had a midlife that, medical crisis. That was that was a, a 
well, there was a correlation. A correlation, yeah. you know. So again, you can't double blind placebo control yeah. study that. But anecdotally, putting a large group of people together, I can I can give you examples of famous people and people you've never heard of that that died mid life, mm. um, or had a major medical crisis and had strained or tolerant relationships with their. Um, or cold, strain and cold relationships with their parents. So the, just these insights, and you know, some of it's quite challenging and triggering, and mm. the rest. But just these insights onto the areas of life and recognizing, I suppose, the overall premise of the book is you can't just be exceptional at one area of your life. And, and stereotypically speaking, for many people, it's either their career or their family. It's like if I'm good at my job, then everything else will look after itself. If I'm yeah. good at my family, then everything else will look after itself. Yeah. But it's not that. That's not the case. There are that life is brutal. Life is is really um, it's quite consequential when we do consciously or unconsciously settle for mediocrity in one or more areas of life. And and my hope for people that that read or listen to the audio book is that they feel like they can and will make each of their areas of life exceptional. And it's not all the time. It's a continuum that is often yeah. like this, right? There's times when your movement sucks or your social life's challenged or your family's so hard or work is going wild, you know. Like, that happens. That's called life. But recognising what your standards are and then when there's challenges and you recognise you're going to move through this and then you're going to elevate to exceptional over time, that's a whole different paradigm than just settling for average. Because um, exceptional isn't perfect. Correct. Yeah. And and And... And I'm mediocre. Some people go, but I just want a mediocre love, I think. And as a journalist, I'm like, I think we've got a different definition here. Mediocre, more defined as subpar. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what yeah, people dog. want is a simple life. Yes. Now, an exceptional life and a simple life are best friends. Can be. They are just so intertwined. Mm. I think a complicated life can be really quite mm. tricky, and it takes a special person to embrace um, a complicated life. But there are people that can do it. I often think of people in major major leadership or major family crises. You often mm. think of like, you know, we know people that have got, you know, like four kids to four different dads and all those things. I think, gee, how do they deal with the complications? Yeah. But some of them can actually deal with it really quite well. Mm. So I think it's important to understand for each of us as an individual, how do you define your exceptional life? It's different for every single one of us because we're all unique human beings. And then how do you go about on a you know daily, weekly, monthly basis to consciously create it rather than get swept up in the headlines of the urgencies and the trivialities of, of daily life? And how do you keep the important thing the important thing, which is your life? Let's talk about um, – I've got a couple more questions for you, Marcus. Conscious of the time, the wind's just picking up a little bit. I do have a pair of socks just there to put on the mics if, I, if, we, have, if, we, have, if we need to. You didn't take them off beforehand, no? You, got yeah, you know, when, out, I was, yeah. when I was interviewing Cindy, we, we had um, tea cosies. We put tea cosies on. I'm pretty sure it was Cindy we had tea cosies or socks. Um, you may have touched on it before. I don't know. I'm not preempting anything. But um, is there anything you're irate about at the moment? Oh, I just get – I do get – look, I'm a raging extrovert, Charlie. So I think I, I told you earlier, at the moment I can't go north. You need to tell me. I can't go south. I can't go I'm, – I'm already on the easternmost point of Australia and the only places, as the Pet Shop Boys would say, is I can go west. So I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, – and I have been angry this week and a few friends have gone, are you okay? Mm. I was like, oh, I'm just – I'm like a caged animal. Yeah. Like I was really looking forward to seeing you today because I just am realizing for me and my personality, I've got to get on the front foot even more. My work I've realized over the last 18 months, running events and doing keynote presentations and talking to real people, that was such a big part of my social life. For me, running an event, the highlight was often the night before having dinner and a beautiful glass of wine with a Cindy or a Kim or a you or a someone and just having great times. I've really missed uh, that. 
But I think what I'm learning is regardless of border closures and lockdowns, I'm, uh, it's, on, it's on me to make more of an effort to catch up with people more often for lunch Even or dinner more. or a walk on the beach or mm. something um, because if I don't fill my bucket up that way, sitting at home, Zoom meeting here and there, it just drives me wild. If someone asks me to do another Zoom, I know you're on a Zoom before today, I just, <laughs> I've got no patience for it anymore, I tell you. <laughs> It has its place now, but I think yeah, no, I think we'll be we'll be happy when we don't have to rely on that quite so much. Um, what are you excited about? I am a, apart I am, from everything. I, yeah, I'm very one. <laughs> I'm, I'm one for uh, the future. Um, mm, I'm a. Okay, I'm good. definitely an optimist. I'm I'm watching Ted Lasso on Apple TV at the moment. A couple of friends told me I'm a little bit like Ted Lasso. He's a raging optimist, and he's an American that takes over an English soccer team. Okay, and cool. uh, and I have a bit of Ted Lasso in me. I, I attempt to bring a bit more measured optimism into my world these days. Um, but I, you know, I said to someone the other day, like, if you don't have hope, then you die. Like, you have to have just at least one iota of hope in order yeah. to get up the next day and do something. So, as much as if I read the news too much, I think my hope chips would be down. Yeah. Um, but you know, I look at my family, I look at my children, I look at my wife, I look at friendships and the rest of it. And I, I love, I love the life that I've created, and I just want more of that. And you know, and I truly wish, and I don't mean that to sound egoic. I truly wish that everyone could say that they love the life that they've created and they, yeah. and they want more of it. Because if you if you don't, then it's, it's almost upon you to create something that you do want more of. I just want more of what I have. Well, it is a choice, isn't it? Absolutely, the, the choice to be mediocre or exceptional. Yeah, that does trigger a number of people. But yes, absolutely, it no, is no, a choice. Like, oh, yeah, but the sooner we take responsibility for our life, it's not our mum's fault, our dad's fault, our, our brothers or our teachers or our sisters. It's it's our choice and yeah. whatever cards we've been dealt. And I again, I've put in the book. I like to interview Holocaust survivors, war survivors, mm. people that have lived the most opposite life to me. I've lived a very cushy, main, you know, middle class life. Um, I like to get a, a, I call it just a gratitude of contrast yeah. by interviewing people that have just, you know, had to escape a concentration camp five times, you know. How do they actually live and become the world's happiest man? You know, how does yeah, that I read happen? that book the other day. Yeah, Eddie JQ. Yeah. yeah, so Eddie's in the book. He's a good friend oh, of cool. mine and he's a beautiful human being. And um, how does Eddie become the world's happiest man? Really, for Eddie, it was when he had his child. Yeah. I think it was his son, Michael. He realized he was probably the world's grumpiest and bitter man. Yeah. And he recognized that he could not be that type of dad and he could not bring his past into the future. Mm. And that's a big challenge for a lot of us. But imagine that as a Holocaust survivor. You know, as Eddie says, a lot of people never left the concentration camp. No. They stayed there till the day they died. But if it's good enough for Eddie JQ, mm. it's good enough for you and I to, mm. to create a bit more joy and fulfillment in our life. It's a great book. Um, it's Pat perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. Bring and, perspective to one's life. You know, as he said, hate is a disease. Mm. You know, it's corrosive and we have to learn to just drop the hate. As soon as we as soon as we live as another Holocaust survivor, Alice Hurt Sommer, she was the oldest female survivor. She said, I have no room for pessimism or hate. If it's good enough for a Holocaust survivor, mm. it's good enough for you and I to have mm. no room mm. for pessimism or hate. So I don't want to look down on the world. I don't I don't look down on what's going on at the moment. I'm not pessimistic about what's going on. I can be challenged by it, but that's a wonderful thing. Mm. You know, it's definitely... Um, it's when we grow, isn't it? 100%. That's what I was going to say. It's definitely um, encourage people like you and I to be more, to, to grow more. Mm. You know, as I said to you, you've got great courage to be running your events and traveling around the country. Um, no, absolutely, because that's what people need so much right now. 
I feel like people must give you the biggest bear hugs when they see you because it's like, he's arrived. We're doing it. We're well, doing it. I, well, there's certainly we were in Queensland a couple of weeks ago and we had two, like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and there was border closures, you know, imminent. And we, we did it. And it was, a, there's definitely a sense of, we we have we we're here we're doing it and it wasn't so much about Hamish and I I think just as a collective of people coming together learning some you know like really good stuff critical stuff at this point you know, how to grow food how to how to you know how to engage with nature how to be how to express your individuality you know they people are hungry they have an appetite for that sort of thing and so if we can keep managing to roll those workshops out, um, which we have. By the time this goes out, I'm sure our dates will be well and truly up. You know, we'll be in Victoria in late, well, let's hope, Victoria in late October, um, Tassie in early November, um, WA in late November. I think there's a few others scattered in there somewhere, and that's the plan. But, you know, we trust that we will, and, and, and until they put me in a straitjacket, we will, we, will, we will keep doing it because I, I think it's just, again, it's critical stuff that, you know, a people get together as a group and, and, and you know and, and, and talk about this sort of stuff and then and B they go home and they've actually got tools they can actually go and grow that food. Mm. Think differently, you know. And, maybe and just connect into the land as a source joy. of great mental health and fulfilment oh, and the therapy. Joy. That's simple pleasure. Um Marcus, we're on the what's the, what, what, the Pacific Highway? Yes, let's call it the Pacific Highway. So there's a billboard out there. Yep. And you have the opportunity to put a little quote saying question. I don't know anything on it. What would you What would you put on there? Well, I've just I've just held the book in my hand, and I wasn't expecting uh, that. And that's what I'm going to put in. Make the rest of your life the best of your life. And I'd put a circle on make because yeah. you said it earlier. It's our responsibility. Mm. Um, and I say that whenever I sign off a, a keynote presentation or a podcast or the rest. But um, that would be it. Or you are the most important person in your world. <laughs> We can, have, we can have well, it's gonna be double sided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, north, north one way, and then south way the other. I love it. Um, I love it. We better wrap it up. Just well, where can people find you, Marcus? Where, where, you know, what what can they um, when they do find you? What will they find? You've got um, hundred not out. Um, yep. Your wellness couch is a collective of, of wonderful, wonderful um, podcasts in there. Tell us about sort of where people can find more. Sure. About so if they're doing. on the socials, I think just at Marcus D Pierce. That's P E A R C E. Um, and then MarcusPierce.com.au. They can, if they want a signed copy of the book, best to go to the website. You don't have any control over Amazon or Booktopia or the rest. Uh, but if they're overseas, Amazon and Booktopia and those ones are best. But MarcusPierce.com.au for the book. Um, and then, yeah, the 100 Not Out podcast. Mm. Charlie, before I forget, we're going to give two listeners yeah, good um, a copy of the book. Yes. And all we're they, going to... Hang on, they don't have to share the book. They get one each. One each. Yeah, they can share it with <laughs> we're their gonna give, We're going to give, husband we're gonna give two, two listeners a copy of the book. It's like, oh, but hang on, one lives in Frio. Yeah. And how are they going to do that? <laughs> no, one each, one each. And uh, all we're going to ask them to do is to go to Charlie Arnott on Instagram. Yeah. And when they see the post for this episode, yes. tag a friend... Yes. Who they think would like to listen to it. They've clearly by now listened to the yes. episode. Yeah. If they think there's a friend out there that would also enjoy listening to it, tag them on Insta. Good one. And they go on the running to win a copy. Yeah, so that post will go out when this when the, when the episode goes out. And if you don't listen to it for a couple of weeks, go back on Insta and go back two that's weeks it. to when it was released. And that's that's a great – he's marketing. This spoke, he lives and breathes. I've always stuff. got books in the boot these days. It's the, uh, the, the world yeah, of an author. It's your business, it's your business card, isn't it? It is. It's a it's a good business card to have. I love the tactile nature of a yeah. real book. Well, it's a, but it's a real achievement. Congratulations! Yes. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. No, it's my. I think. I mean, I, it's like it's like a second language. 
Yeah, I reckon anyone who 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 can speak another language is like twice as smart as me. Yeah. Anyone who's written a book is twice <laughs> as smart as me. Because I think I think it's just an amazing. It's a you know it's a it's a quarter life life's work. Hopefully not your last one. Oh look, I only ever intended to write one book, but who knows? But if you write a book, Charlie, there would be I would say hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, that would be determined and uh, inspired to read it, and I'd be one of them. So <laughs> it is a challenge. I'm not going to lie to write yeah. a book, but gee whiz, if we could just unpick your brain for a year and just get it all down on paper, it'd be a it'd be a great read. Well, Marcus, you're very kind of saying that, and the regenerative oh, journey, the regenerative journey. Well, you know, it's a, it's a good point you make, and, and I'm and I'm, you know. This, you and I are sitting here talking as I have, and look, I'm, watching I'm looking, the beautiful look kids scream and play. There's a half dozen kids over there with a dog pissing on a tree, <laughs> and but they're running around. I mean, you can hear them in the background, no doubt. And it like this is what it's all about. It feels it? like life one hundred and one, right yeah, there. Yeah, like I just this this fills me with so much so much joy. It's like it's the best year, not the best years of their life, but it's like this is the foundational years of their mm-hmm. life. Um, what was I saying? So the podcast for me, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, I just love the fact that I get to sit here with people like you to talk about these lovely, wonderful things. That's what will go into a book. You know, that's, yes. that, that's the sort of the, you know, because that's I have a story to tell and, you know, I have many guests who have, you know, each have a story, and there's so yeah. much value in them picking that apart. That'll happen one day. With, with I guess, with their I'll talk to you about that. I've already got an idea. No one's going to listen to this anyway. Marcus, we better um, we better wrap it up. Um, thanking you so very much for your time. Um, it's an amazing read. It's uh, as I said, it's it's a collection of of you know some years of your life and um thank you for sharing your regenerative journey um with us thank you to the farm at byron bay for letting us sit here on the farmhouse steps um with the corellas and the pigs and the cattle and the kids and oliver's hands and the pissing dogs and the and oliver who just drove yeah drove past there before um it's been a wonderful afternoon it couldn't have been a better afternoon oh, could it's it? divine and you know what what makes it even divine. that just a little just nudges it into that even better zone. It's a Friday. I oh, know. That's the best thing about Friday afternoons. You just completely go to another place. What's, you? what's your favourite day of the week? I, I used to like laugh at people for Friday, but I love the energy of Friday. Mm. I love the Anticipation? energy. Anticipation? Yeah. Relief? It's just a, I think it's the casual nature. Like Monday, I'm ramped up, ready to go. Yeah. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, you're kind of getting those big tasks kind of either done. Yeah. And then Thursday, Friday, just begin to Toasting, yeah. Yeah. And again, I've loved um, embracing that rather than resisting it because I think some people are like, no, don't do it. Do you plan your week on a Sunday? Uh, When do you plan your week? Yes. um, I plan my week on a Friday sometimes so that I can switch off for the weekend. You know, that's that's, that's, but it has changed over the years. The yeah, more right. kids we've had, the more it's changed. Because it gets like Friday, that's idealistic. And it used like, to be like two hours on a Sunday, I'd like plan within an inch of its life. Yeah. And then I was like, no, nah, it's too hard. And then I would start to do it on a Friday. Sometimes I'd do it on a Monday morning. Uh, but it's it's chopped and changed. But I'm one to plan. I'm definitely a definitely a planner. There's a lot of lot of merit in that, absolutely. And for farmers who will probably laugh at the idea of planning, everyone has to have a plan. But you know, my God, you know, the farmer who thinks he can. He can his, well. He can well. He can he can plan his week to the to the hour even, even to the day. Sometimes it's like ah, you know, the cow's having trouble having a calf. You got a flat tire. 
sheep got out of the yeah. bloody paddy. I mean, it's just. I mean, not not complaining by any means, but I guess it's just one of the things that farmers have to um, have to deal with. And one last quick point I want to make before we we wrap it up about farming because we haven't talked about farmers too much. We've touched on it, and it's been fantastic that we have. Back to hospitality. I'm a firm believer in you know because I get a few young people, males and females, um, you know, saying, oh, I've left uni or I've left school or whatever and you know, what do I do? And I, I always say, you know, a farm is not, is, is not too dissimilar to a pub. Yeah. Right? You know, go to a farm. Like, don't go back to uni. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for kids to do a couple of years out of uni, you know, before they go to uni and learn those social skills, play football for the local side, you know, get to know your, your neighbours, Go and work with someone, experience it. And it's, as I said, it's not dissimilar to a pub where you learn so many life skills, you know. So there's a plug for young farmers. Absolutely. Get on the land. Yeah. And then, well, there's, the, there's the health benefits. And there's like, grow your, you yeah. know, if you're living in the shearers' quarters, just put a little veggie garden at the back. I'm there. telling you, I'm going to drive down to Hanamino. You might be welcome. And four kids. And we're just going to be uh, we're just going to be your farm hands for a week. You know, holiday. <laughs> you just get us to work, Charlie. Well, you know what? That'd be great for everyone because um, it just would. Absolutely, we'd be allowed to do that, wouldn't we? Totally. No, nothing. No rules. We've got a big, us. heavy table down there too. Yeah, I'm so ready. I've got the muscles to lift it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have them by the end of it, anyway. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. We're going to go. Um, that's been lovely, Marcus, and thank you for sharing your regenerative journey. Thanks, Charlie. Next week's episode on the regenerative journey is with Nick Mace, a young farmer with a young family at Walgett. Uh, he grew up at Walgett and I caught up with him a little while ago. Fascinating story and a really interesting story about his uh, transition, his current transition uh, to a regenerative farming and a, uh, a regenerative way of life. Look forward to that next week on the regenerative journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.